everyone, and welcome back to the ICU Ed and Toddcast. ICU Ed, like education, Ed and Todd, Toddcast podcast. I am your host, Eddie, and I continue to drag my co-host, Todd, to our recording studio. Today, we're going to be talking about Neutrorea 3, which dropped in ISICEM a couple weeks ago. And as our old article, we thought it makes sense to go back to Neutrorea 1, which was published in JAMA in 2013. I feel like I should mention this at least briefly at the top. Neutrorea 3 is low versus standard calorie feeding in ventilated adults with shock and Neutrorea 1 is the effect of not monitoring residual gastric volumes. Before we begin, a big thank you and a welcome to all of our new listeners. We caught a little bit in the Twitter algorithm, a large part due to some giants in our field who had kind things to say, which I mean, at least for me, was reaffirming that we're heading down the right track. Uh, As a tangent, Eddie, I will say that when you walked in this morning, I thought you and I were wearing the same shirt. I realized that while they're close, they're not the same shirt. Mine is clearly of a higher quality than yours. And so I'm relieved that we do have slightly different fashion senses. As a podcast medium, today is the day after Easter and both of us decided to wear pastel purple plaid shirts. I think it looks better on me than you, but... As everything does, right, Todd? Of course. With new listeners, we had a new round of feedback. Somehow I still talk too fast and Todd is perfect. Todd already has difficulty walking through the double doors to our IC because of that big head. So let's tone down those comments a bit. <laughs> Funny story, at least a fun story. I like most people listen to podcasts at 1.2 times speed. So starting this project, that's in my head how fast I thought I should talk. But I realize now that if you're listening on 1.2 speed and I'm talking at 1.2 speed, then you're listening to me at like 1.4, 1.5 speed. So I'll tone that back. Uh, but I do speak fast normally. I've asked for specific feedback on that when I give talks, but maybe my evaluators have been too kind because they always say it's, you know, quote, not the problem. Or maybe your evaluators sleep through your talks. Yeah, it's also possible. Thanks, Todd, for sleeping through my talks. <laughs> a couple of programming reminders a little long this time. This will probably end our current coverage of the trials published with ISICM, mostly because I can't say the acronym. Uh, seriously, though, the other two trials, one was a monoclonal antibody against the complement system, which showed no efficacy in severe COVID. And the other was PROCOAG, which is a great acronym that evaluated four-factor prothrombin complex concentrate, or PCC, for patients in trauma. For the COVID trial, neither Todd nor I are experts in the complement cascade. It's a medicine that neither of us have heard of, and it doesn't seem like we'll see it anytime soon. So we're not sure, A, how how applicable it is to our practice and B, if we could add much more commentary than just reading the trial. And C, we're tired of COVID. And C, Todd is tired of COVID. Pro-COAG, I'm really interested in discussing, but you know the way critical care is triaged at our institution, we see very few, if any, trauma. Uh, this trial will be on the docket to revisit in the near future, but I think we would have to invite a trauma surgeon to really help us put this in the right context. You know, just not trying to pretend we're something that we're not. You ready to move on to the Nutrarias? No. Second programming note. We really aren't, right? (laughs) (laughs) Second programming note. If you made it this far, you probably know that Todd and I have a bias towards prospective randomized trials. However, not all impactful evidence are in the forms of clinical trials. There were two interesting retrospective cohort studies published recently, one on hydrocortisone and fluidocortisone and septic shock published in JAM Internal Medicine, and the other on hyponatremia and osmotic demyelination syndrome in New England Journal Evidence, which we'll talk about soon. Maybe as a bonus episode, maybe we'll release it on our normal schedule pending our other responsibilities. Now that we've told them all of our plans for the next year, are we ready to move on to the new Jurias? Last thing, Todd was the former president of ASPEN, which is the American Society of Parental and Enteral Nutrition, which I don't think biases your interpretation of the trial, but worth noting in the spirit of full disclosures. Yeah, I think that's that's actually really fair. And I think the other thing to note is, is that I was the principal investigator of a trial called Eden, which was published in JAMA in 2010, which has, I think, a fair amount of relevance to Nutria 3. And so I put that out there as trying to be 
transparent so somebody could say, you know, uh, hey, well, maybe he's biased because he did a similar trial uh, a number of years ago. Well, that's a lot of intro. Thanks again to everybody. We love the feedback. Keep bringing it in. I see you at Toddcast at gmail.com at ICUcast at AdChan at ToddRise underscore ICU. If you're enjoying, keep sharing on social media and by word of mouth. And if you have questions about any article we've talked about recently or planning to talk about, let us know and we'll be sure to get to it. But let's get cracking. So like I said, today we are going to be talking about Neutraria 3 and 1 in that order. A big couple of episodes for the Crikes Trigger Sep Network, which was just Crikes back in 2013, who did both of these articles and Cape Cod. Clinical Research in Intensive Care and Sepsis, or at least was, Crikes. I didn't look very hard, but not really sure what Trigger Sep stands for. Nutria 3 is titled Low versus Standard Calorie and Protein Feeding in Ventilated Adults with Shock, a randomized controlled multi-center open-label parallel group trial published in Lancet Respiratory Medicine in March 2023 by Rainier et al. These Lancet titles are descriptive but really are a mouthful. I really just have to address the elephant in the room first. Nutria as an acronym. What an awesome name, huh? It's awful. Yeah, at it's best, brutal. Beautiful. At best, it's a C minus. I skimmed their manuscript, uh, their clinicaltrials.gov registration, their statistical analysis plan, and their appendix looking for what this stands for, but I couldn't find it. So I'll just give my impression. This reminds me and has to remind you of a mashup between nutrition and diarrhea. Yeah. I mean, I've said this before in talks when I talked about Nutrio. Uh, I don't know where the acronym came from. It's an awful acronym, number one. It's an even worse acronym for nutrition, number two. And I think it has to be some sort of contraction of nutrition and diarrhea. There's three words that I never want to say in the same sentence again in my life. It's mashup, nutrition, and diarrhea. Yeah. I did see if the French word for diarrhea was pronounced significantly different, and but it is, I mean, literally part of my French, diarrhea. So not enough that I'm willing to give it the benefit of the doubt. And as we concluded last episode, these authors, or at least the trial group, had enough global awareness to name a trial Cape Cod. So I think they knew exactly what they were doing. And they've done it three times. There's Nutria <laughs> 1, 2, and 3. That's very fair. Anyway, this was a trial which randomized 3,044 patients in 61 ICUs in France who were receiving both invasive mechanical ventilation and vasopressors to either a low or standard calorie and protein targets during their first seven days of intensive care. The primary outcome was time to readiness for ICU discharge and 90-day mortality. Yeah, be, to be clear, there were two co-primary outcomes, 90-day mortality and then time to ICU ready discharge. Right. And this is kind of a neutral trial. It's really hard to describe two primary outcomes. It's kind of neutral, kind of positive. They had two primary outcomes and there was no difference in mortality, but there was a statistical difference in the quote, time to readiness for ICU discharge. Yeah. And we'll, we'll get into some details on that as we talk about this in depth. So Todd, first things first, nutrition in the ICU has gone through many iterations of questions ranging from full fees versus trophic fees to early versus late to enteral versus parenteral delivery routes to supplementation of a variety of specific components of nutrition. What's the relevant summary of the literature that got us to this point, the start of Nutria 3? So I think it's a it's a great setup question for Nutria 3 and an overview of where has the views and the kind of satellite view of critical care nutrition gone in the last two to three decades. And a number of decades ago, there were a number of studies that showed an association with malnutrition in critically ill patients and poor outcomes. And in fact, that's an association that still exists in data today. People who are malnourished in general don't do well when they get a critical illness. Unfortunately, from that association, people made a leap and made an assumption that that meant that we should 
fully feed patients because that would improve their outcomes because malnutrition was associated with bad outcomes. And now, over the course of the last probably 15 years, there have been a number of studies that have compared higher administration of PIC calories or protein or both of those compared to a lower administration of those and have shown that the higher administration is not resulting in better outcomes. Some of them, like a panic, suggested that maybe the higher administration actually gave worse outcomes. Others, like Eden, that we conducted and published in JAMA demonstrated that there weren't any differences in outcomes. And I think it has at least changed the thinking in critical care nutrition to the default maybe shouldn't be that we fully feed everybody from the time that they come into our ICU. And when I say fully feed, we're trying to give target calories and protein to these patients. We don't do that from the very time they come into our ICU and that maybe there's a period where, and this is where I think Nutria hypothesis comes from, there's a period where maybe less is more and feeding less calories and less protein may be more beneficial for our patients as opposed to trying to push them to their goal calories or protein uh, right from the start. This might be an ethically weird question, but has it ever looked at low versus no feeding? Not well, not in a randomized controlled trial that you would have any faith in the results in. I think that you're right. I think people have struggled with that because people have said, you know, we have to feed these patients, right? We can't starve these patients for a period of time. But I think, and we can maybe talk about this a little bit at the end if you want, I think you're going to see some movement into that area. And it, it won't be no food for a long period of time, but it might be no food for the first 24, 48 hours or something like that when the patient has you know just a severe critical illness. And you could imagine that maybe you're doing more harm than good by trying to, trying to feed this patient. In the national national, no, in the natural sort of way the body reacts. If you're sick, like you don't go ravage, right? You lay on the couch and you maybe have a bowl of chicken soup, but in general, you eat less when you're sick than when you feel well. And maybe there's something to that. And that's why the body does that. And we should be maybe mimicking that in the ICU, I think is in our critically ill patients is the thought. But not all our natural adaptations are protective. Absolutely. So I think it'd probably make more sense for this conversation. We talked about the trial first. So who are these patients? These were adults aged 18 of years of age of older and the ICU receiving invasive mechanical ventilation and vasopressors with an expected duration of ventilation of greater than 48 hours. Nutritional support had to have been expected to start within 24 hours after intubation or 24 hours of ICU admission if they were intubated prior to their arrival in the ICU. Exclusion criteria were if they had pre-existing specific nutritional needs, if the patient had a do not resuscitate order or other forms of treatment limitations, or prisoner, pregnant, or recently pregnant. These are all pretty standard, and I think I'll just move on unless you have a big reservation there. No comment on the exclusion criteria. The one thing I would highlight on the exclusion criteria is, is that these are not just any patient in our ICU. They're trying to select the sickest patients, so you had to have the patients to being eligible had to be on both mechanical ventilation and vasopressors. Yeah, that's definitely important to point out. Thanks, Todd. So their actual intervention, so it's not blinded because they are literally doing volumes of nutrition, which makes sense. Their actual targets were 6 kcals per kilogram and 0.2 to 0.4 grams per kilogram of protein in the low group compared to 25 kcals per kilogram and 1.0 to 1.3 grams per kilogram in the standard group of protein. On day eight, if still alive and mechanically ventilated, both groups were changed to 30 kcals per kilogram and 1.2 to 2.0 grams 
milligrams per kcal of protein per day, which is higher than even the standard group. I found it interesting that they capped their weight-based dosing at a BMI of 30, so if you are over that, you got the same dose as a person with a BMI of 30. You know, Todd, I'm not super familiar with nutritional targets and doses, and perhaps maybe I should, but how do these match up with prior literature, and is it normal on day eight to make a huge jump, at least for the low-calorie intervention group? So this is within the realm of kind of how previous trials have been done. Uh, guidelines recommend someplace in this range of 25 kilocals per kilogram of body weight. And nobody really knows what the right adjustment is for the obese or the morbidly obese, but we're fairly certain that that shouldn't just be open-ended and 25 kilocals per kilo, no matter how much you weigh. So I think what they've done with the calories is reasonable. The protein really is an unknown. There are very few randomized protein trials. The 1 to 1.2, 1.3 grams per kilo per day of protein comes from both the European and the American guidelines uh, recommend something in that ballpark. So I think their usual dose is pretty reasonable. And before many of the trials that have that have uh, informed us in this area, and this being one of them, I think you would say this is a reasonable usual care dose. And then obviously the lower group is lower than that because that's what they were trying to do both in protein and in, in calories. The arbitrary eight days is actually arbitrary, but the, and you kind of touched on this with the ethics question, but the concern people have is, is that we can't underfeed people forever. The ICU is not a weight loss program. We're not trying to get them to lose weight. And so at some point you have to say, well, we need to try to fully feed them. And Eden, which we did and published in JAMA earlier, used six days and said in six days, you know, full disclosure, the reason we use six days there is because we knew that the vast majority of patients had either come off the ventilator by day six or had unfortunately passed away by day six. So we figured that would give us a pretty good separation of groups. And most patients would be pure in one group or the other, and you wouldn't get that ramping up in a ton of patients. I think people probably think six days is close to a week. We're doing about a week, and that's where the, the number comes from. Uh, outcomes. I mentioned before there co-primaries of 90-day mortality and time to readiness from discharge to the ICU. I think the first is pretty self-explanatory. The time to readiness for discharge warrants a little bit of explaining. This is basically an abbreviated ward readiness criteria and seem to want to get at, well, if the patient is boarding in your ICU, but otherwise stable for transfer, we want to give that patient credit for improvement. So these are not requiring mechanical ventilation or pressors and doesn't need the ICU for any mental status management, seemingly both for coma, for airway watch, or for agitation. And they don't have any hematologic or metabolic abnormality that requires intense management and monitoring. You know, I'm not sure I would have gone through all of that. Patients were randomized at the patient level. So if there was an issue at a couple of centers per se, then it should have balanced out in randomization. Yeah, completely agree. Part of the reason they may have gone through all of that, though, is remember, this is an open label trial. And so I don't think they wanted to leave it to the discretion of whoever to decide when somebody was actually going to leave the ICU versus when they were ready to leave the ICU. This whole ICU readiness for discharge really is just the modern day version of does the patient need the ICU anymore? In the old in days when we didn't have capacity issues and a patient that didn't need the ICU got transferred out of the ICU, we just said till ICU discharge. But now that ICU discharge has other factors in play. And so now we use ICU discharge readiness instead of did they actually physically leave the bed. One thing that I couldn't quite figure out is how they dealt with death in their analysis. Their footnotes for their table three says analyze using competing risks model with death as a competing risk. Can you translate that for listeners and for me? No, because I'm not a statistician. But essentially what it means is, is that you would not get credit for ever being ready for ICU discharge if you died. But 
you would contribute days of not being ready for the days that you were alive. So if you died on day seven, it's not that we're only looking at survivors, right? That person would contribute six days of not being ready for ICU discharge and then would never hit the endpoint of being ready for ICU discharge. So why not ICU free days here? Why did we do it a different way? Is it new? Is it a new trend that we should be more familiar with? I, I think, and maybe I'm just naive and not sophisticated enough from a statistical standpoint, but I think this is a fancy way of saying ICU free days. Okay. Although it's not really ICU free days, right? Because they don't have to leave the ICU. They just have to be ready to leave the ICU. Yeah. So it's ICU discharge readiness free days. ICU, or, ICU requirement free days. Yeah. ICU need free days. Yeah. There you go. There you go. All right. We got it. We're getting it together. Table one, baseline characteristics. Nothing jumps out to me as uneven between the groups. Age, 66 years of age, about 66% male. BMI was 27. All of their severity of illness scores were about the same, indicate a pretty sick cohort, you know, like SOFA of 10 and a SAPS 2 score of 61, though I suppose to be fair that to be even in this cohort, you have to at least have three points for respiratory and three points for cardiovascular. The only thing that stood out to me was when comparing to the patient population I take care of is the acute central nervous system failure as an acute illness at ICU admission. Either I don't know what this means or I assume it's being an altered level of mentation, but even if I limit this to being comatose, I feel like I see more than 7% of this. Yeah, I think it's probably altered and I think it probably is only in patients that it can be assessed and therefore... You know, a large number of patients that are mechanically ventilated, uh, you can't really assess their mental status. So those so, intubated and sedated patients, they're just not counting. Yeah, I think that's right. Uh, that makes sense. F- figure one is their consort diagram of 10,000 patients screened, 3,000 were excluded for treatment-limiting conditions. B- before we get into results, it's worth noting for all trials in this era that the enrollment period from July of 2018 to December of 2020 overlapped with COVID. I don't particularly think COVID impacts nutrition, but then again, what do I know about COVID? Just wanted to point it out. Relevant here because a thousand patients were either inadvertently omitted or were admitted when trial organization difficulties were occurring. And that seems like a lot, but I think I'm willing to give them a little pandemic pass there. Yeah, I think that's probably in the pandemic pass era. Figure three and table two contain their separation between groups. It looks like they did separate their groups pretty well. They achieved a big separation in calories and protein, uh, even including their quote, non-nutritional calories, which I'm not savvy enough to know exactly what that is. And there's a slightly higher insulin use and glucose level in the standard therapy or the higher nutrition group, which I think is expected. There's notably a big difference in fluid intake during the trial, 11 liters versus 17 liters, which is about a liter per day, assuming the full seven days of their intervention, which probably isn't true for all patients, you know, the full seven days. You have to guess this is related to the nutritional volume, but just should be noted to frame the outcomes a little bit. Yeah, I agree with you. I don't know what to make of that either. The authors of the manuscript, the investigators talk about, you know, some of that could be volume of nutrition, which I suppose is probably true, but I'm not sure all of it is, but I don't really entirely know what to make of it. The non-nutritional calories received is things like dextrose and IV fluids. And then the biggest part of this is propofol. Propofol with the lipid uh, is a non, at least in the nutrition, critical care nutrition world, is a non-nutritional calorie delivery. And in general, people tend to adjust their feeds based off of, reduce them down based off of how much propofol that the patient is getting. That's good to know. I thought they were calculating the calories in my two grams of ceftriaxone that I was giving every 24 hours. Outcomes, primary outcomes first, no difference in 90-day mortality, 41.3% in the low group, 42.8% in the standard group died at 90 days. They classified patients missing data at day 90 as died, and a sensitivity analysis excluding those patients showed no difference. At first glance, at least my first glance, there 
isn't a large difference in this readiness to ICU discharge outcome with a median of eight days and in an interquartile range of five to 14 days in the low group compared to nine days with an interquartile range of five to 17 days in the standard group. But they gave this a hazard ratio of 1.12 and a p-value of 0.015, which is significant. The hazard ratio over one here indicates that more patients were ready for ICU discharge faster in the lower calorie group. Yeah, so let's walk through these a little bit. So if you are a believer in the fact that higher calories or higher protein or both might be detrimental to patients, you can look at that mortality signal and go, you know, it favors the lower group. Not statistically significant. It's one and a half percent difference in mortality. This is a 3,000 patient study. And so, you know, if you're like me, you could say, yeah, maybe it's a little bit lower in the group that was fed less. However, that difference is pretty small and we weren't able to detect it in a 3,000 patient study. So overall, if there is any difference, it's going to be really small. The other one I think is fascinating. Uh, I've heard a number of people since this has been out, and it's only been out a couple of weeks, but I've heard a number of people since this has been out get excited about the fact that the lower feeds are better. And this was a primary endpoint, and you get ready for ICU discharge faster, and therefore the lower feeds are better. The thing I would caution is this. The trial put forth some objective criteria for ICU readiness, ICU discharge readiness. But what they don't have is they don't have actual criteria for how to wean from the ventilator in this open label trial. And that whole one day difference is actually a difference in mechanical ventilation between the two groups. So the lower group actually came off the ventilator one day earlier. And then, and this isn't a surprise, we see this in a lot of trials, how quick you're ready to leave the ICU depends on how quick I get you off the ventilator. Came off the ventilator one day earlier, and then therefore were one day earlier ready to leave the ICU. And I'll be honest, and maybe I'm just being too rigid on this trial, but to me, I really worry that in an open-label, unblinded trial without strict weaning criteria and ventilator management criteria, that a one-day difference in ventilator management may not be as great of a difference as we think it is. And if that's not a difference, then there's not a difference in ICU discharge readiness. And overall, my take on this trial is that I think the, at least clinically, the endpoints in both of these groups were very, very similar. And I would say, I think these two feeding strategies resulted in similar outcomes. So Todd, you're talking about that there was more time to invasive mechanical ventilation weaning, which I think is more ventilator days, a median of five days versus six days with a hazard ratio of 1.12 and a p-value of 0.007. I'm not so sure. I don't disagree with your conclusion, but I'm not so sure I'm willing to so quickly write off that as not related to the outcome. We had talked previously offline about redox and some of these other studies where more protein has more organ failure. So I don't know why I can ne- I would necessarily dismiss it in this in the context of this trial. Just so that I'm clear, I think it is related to the outcome in the fact that I think duration of mechanical ventilation is what drives the difference in readiness for ICU discharge between these two populations. The low group has one fewer day in general on mechanical ventilator and one few one day sooner ready for ICU discharge. But I'm saying that I can think of reasons hand wave reasons that this would, that ventilator difference would be related to their intervention. Yeah. So here's my hesitation. And I think that's a fair way of saying it, hesitation. Can you be confident that the arm did not influence whether or not the patient would get extubated today? Or what I would say is the, well, let's just wait until tomorrow. Because that's the difference here is extubating a patient today versus extubating a patient tomorrow. I'm just worried that it's a small difference and It's an open-label trial where they didn't control everything that could have made that difference. And my confidence in the fact that it's really different, I think, is is not very high. The other side of this is is that I'm 
entirely confident between these data, Eden, Target data, all those trials, I'm very confident now doing the lower administration of calories, protein, or both does not have detrimental outcomes, meaning that you get similar outcome, at least as good outcomes if you give lower amounts of feeding than if you fully feed. I think you can make other arguments for why you may want to give less food. You know, it's easier for the nurses. They can concentrate on something else. There are, and every study that's ever looked at it has shown this, there are fewer GI intolerances when you feed less, less diarrhea, less vomiting, less aspiration. You already commented on your glucose is actually lower. You get less insulin. So there are lots of other reasons why people may want to do lower feeding, especially given that I think we can be uber confident that that doesn't result in worse outcomes than full feeding and that we don't have to push to full feeding to get the absolute best outcomes that we can. The question then becomes, do you have to do lower? If you do the higher, are you mistreating your patient or not providing them the best absolute care? And that's what I just have a lot less confidence in. Yeah, that makes a lot of sense. Thanks for taking the time to clarify that, Todd. I don't really feel like there's a lot of need to go through a lot of their exploratory outcomes. They almost all are neutral or favoring low calorie, and a lot of them make sense. Like there's more elevated transaminases in the full feed group getting more protein. I think that just kind of makes sense. You're getting more protein, your transamination should be higher. There's less GI outcomes in the low group, like you already mentioned. I think the only th- important thing to point out is, you know, in the context of the redox trial and the glutamine supplementation, which showed more renal failure with glutamine, there was no difference in dialysis between the groups. So maybe that protein didn't necessarily matter here. Um. I I agree with you in this, and this, I think, increases my already strong confidence that the lower group is not worse. One, it comes from a number of other studies that have shown similarly. But the other thing is, is that, as you said, almost all the exploratory outcomes are on the side of the lower group. They may not be statistically significant, but they're on the side of the lower group. And if they're not, they're neutral. They don't favor the higher group in any of the any of those outcomes. There may be people listening to this podcast that may say, well, I don't know if I agree with Todd in the fact that I can come up pretty easily with a mechanism as to why the higher group may do worse. And you alluded to it, right? Redox showed that if you gave glutamine, which is a protein at a higher level, you end up with in patients with multi-system organ failure and, and or renal dysfunction, you end up with worse outcomes. Effort trial, which I'm an author on, suggested that higher protein administration in patients with renal failure had worse outcomes. And so you could say there are patients undoubtedly in this group that have or develop renal failure. And if they're getting the higher administration of calories and proteins, then that would be completely consistent with prior studies of redox and effort. I, you know, although I'm not willing to take my interpretation of these there, I would contend to you that I don't think that's a wrong interpretation of these results. I think it's a perfectly reasonable interpretation of these results. Todd, you have a larger presence and knowledge of the prior literature in this space, but with (laughs) Nutria 3, I'm not really sure that there's any data that convinces me that I need to do full feeds for any patient, really. Is that a fair takeaway here? Well, I I think it's a takeaway of the data that are out there, but I would caution you that the strategies that we've used to date to try and study critical care nutrition is to lump everybody together. If you would say, Todd, can you guarantee me that there's not a subpopulation out there that benefits from full feeding? I think the answer, if somebody's being honest, is no, right? There may be a subpopulation that actually benefits from full feeding. And let's be clear, because you can't, as we already talked about, you can't underfeed people forever. You're going to have to feed them to whatever they need, or maybe even more than that, if you want them to rehabilitate put on muscle mass, et cetera, at some point. But all of these studies are early in critical illness. And so early in critical illness, 
in general, fully feeding patients has not been shown to improve their outcomes. But what we, where we need to go from this now is to try and understand, are there subpopulations within there, some of which may benefit from full feeding and others of which, like for example, maybe patients with renal failure that may actually be hurt by full feeding, like obviously hurt, not the Todd doesn't believe it hurt, but like truly hurt that everybody says, oh yeah, that was bad. Sure. I mean, that's true for anything in critical care, right? We've lumped everything, all patients with sepsis, all patients with ARDS, all patients in the ICU, all patients with this, that, and other. I think feel like it's true for everything. I think as you can see, if you read the editorial, which was written by Emma Ridley and myself on this, my thought is, is that what we've done wrong in critical care nutrition all along is, is that we've assumed that every patient is the same, every day of the disease is the same, and every disease is the same. And I think we have to get to a point where we you know, and this is kind of the cliche thing in medicine, but we have to get to a point where we somewhat personalize nutrition. What disease do you have? Do you have sepsis? Do you have trauma? Do you have pancreatitis? Do you have something else, right? And maybe be feeding those patients differently instead of just saying they're all critically ill. What phase of your disease are. And you, the Europeans actually kind of led this charge with their guidelines a few years ago. The European guidelines actually talk about the phases of the disease and underfeeding in the acute phase and then fully feeding in the subacute phase and then even feeding higher, maybe even what some of us would say might be overfeeding in the post-acute phase where you're trying to rehab and gain muscle and that sort of stuff. The concepts that they put forth with it uh, that I laugh at are they define those phases by days of critical illness. So the acute phase is days one to three, right? You and I know there's zero chance that the acute phase can be defined by a day of critical illness. And what we're missing here is, is that we have very few markers that tell us what phase a patient is in. There's one study by Doig from a number of years ago that suggested that one of the markers may be low phosphorus. Low phosphorus may be a marker that patient we should do something else with that patient population. And so I think we have a few markers that we might be able to use, but man, we just don't have a very good understanding of that, how to determine what phase of the acute illness the patient's actually in. So taking those day ranges out, are you, when you are taking care of a critically ill patient in the ICU and thinking about their nutrition, changing their nutrition based off of you think they're in their acute phase or in their resolution phase or recovery phase? Well, not purposefully, but yes, this is what happens. So my practice in the ICU is, is that probably the day after the patient comes in or the day after they get intubated, I start some trophic level feeds, 10 to 20 kilocals per kilo per day. And then I just let those run. In my ICU, usually day three, day four, something like that, a nurse will come to me and say, hey, Dr. Rice, this patient is on trophic feeds. Are you okay if I advance them to full feeds? And I say, yeah, that seems fine. It's a very, very crude marker of the acute phase versus the subacute phase, right? That marker is the nurse is no longer drowning in trying to do everything else for this patient that is like crashing on them. Things have stabilized. The nurse has actually had a chance to kind of survey the room, see what's going on. And they go, oh, look, there's feeds running, but they're only running at 10 or 20 cc's an hour. So maybe we should advance those. I'll go ask. I think it's probably not a very good biomarker, but we may find out it's the best biomarker ever, which is when the nurse can get his or her head above water, the patient's actually okay to be fully fed at that point. I'm going to change gears a little bit for my last question on this. And this is going back to that fluid volume point that I made earlier. So the, the standard calorie group receives more fluids at a tune of six more liters. And we're talking about how this increases their time on the ventilator. We have, and I'm extrapolating a little bit, we have data that suggests that your fluid management does impact your ventilator time with the FACT study. Now, it's not apples to apples comparison, but do you think that could be playing a role here? 
Yeah, so to be clear, in fact, there was at day seven, there was about a seven liter difference in fluid. There was about one liter positive in the liberal group for every day for the first seven days. So positive seven liters by day seven. And in the conservative group, it was about neutral, um, a little positive at the early part, and then you kind of diuresed it off. But at day seven, you were essentially at zero. Yeah. And fact being the two by two factorial study, yeah. I was looking at fluid management in patients with acute lung injury right. or ARDS. Fluid and catheter treatment trial, F-A-C-T-T. Yeah. yeah, absolutely. And in that trial, the conservative group, seven liters less fluid intake by day seven, had two and a half more days alive and off the ventilator. So this is one compared to two and a half, right? A absolutely, this could be the difference. The difference in comparing FACT to this, though, is, is that FACT did not take in a ton of enteral inputs. And people ask me on rounds all the time, how should I deal with enteral input, right? Is that really like the same as a liter of IV fluids? I don't know the answer to that. I mean, it's still an input into the body, but we also don't do a very good job of measuring diarrhea as an output from the body. And so not everything that goes in is a net in when you have some diarrhea and some output, et cetera, et cetera. So I don't, I don't know exactly how to take that into consideration. Having said that, six liters more of fluid in the course of your ICU could absolutely result in a longer time on the ventilator. The data as it is right now seems to suggest that at a minimum, full feeds early is not beneficial and potentially harmful. I completely agree. I think that's a completely fair way of saying it. So your argument is, and I think this is reasonable too, your argument is somebody needs to tell me a reason to feed a patient fully. Because from all of the data that we know, there are a number of things that pretty clearly happen if you feed a patient more, if you give them more calories, more protein, they get more GI distress, they get higher glucoses, they get more insulin given. They probably, as this study showed, they probably have more intake, more fluid intake. And at least as far as we know, all of those things have potential detriments to the patient. All right. Great discussion. So we're going to shift gears, but only a little bit. And we're going to talk about Nutrio 1. This is our quote old article. So we'll go a little bit quicker and hit the high points. This was titled the effects of not monitoring residual gastric volumes on risk of ventilator associated pneumonia in adults receiving mechanical ventilation and early enteral feeding. That's a mouthful. This was published in JAMA in 2013 by again, Renier et al. for at the time, the Crick's group. This trial enrolled 449 mechanically ventilated patients in nine French ICUs who received enteral nutrition within 36 hours of intubation to every six-hour residual volumes versus no residual volume checking. Intolerance to feeds was defined as regurgitation or vomiting in the no checking group or a volume greater than 250 cc's in the checking group. Their primary outcome was VAP, ventilator-associated pneumonia, and VAP was suspected if the patient had a new and persistent or progressive infiltrate on chest x-ray with at least two of leukocytosis to 10K or leukopenia less than 4K, a temperature over 38.5 or below 35.5, or purulent tracheal aspiration. So a lot of that, this is based off of the SIRS criteria. VAP was confirmed on lower respiratory culture. All VAP episodes were adjudicated by a blinded committee, and they ultimately found no difference in VAP, where 16.7% of patients in the no-checking group compared with 15.8% of the patients in the checking group had a VAP. Of their secondary outcomes, I guess maybe really more of a procedural outcome, more patients in the not-checking group vomited, so had GI intolerance. I 
spent a long time walking through their VAP definition criteria because that's one of the things in all of these pneumonia studies where you use pneumonia as an outcome. That definition, you know, I think pneumonia is something that I know it when I see it, but it's really hard to define. Yeah, for sure. And I think one of the arguments in this critiques, maybe is the right term, of this manuscript is whether VAP was the right outcome. And at the time in 2013, I think it was the right outcome because I think people were worried that the one thing we can do to assure safety of enteral feeds is we can check gastric residual volumes. Because if your gastric residual volume becomes large, the patient's at risk for aspiration and for vomiting and for VAP, and you want to do something about it at that time. And they did have more vomiting. Yeah. And they had slightly more VAP. So you could say maybe this is just underpowered. Yeah. 400 patients, maybe not not enough. But I think, as you point out, I, I don't know that I care if they have more vomiting or more VAP. What I care about is, do they spend more time in the ICU? Do they spend more time on the ventilator? Do they die more? Do they have more renal failure or other organ failures? And I think, you know, pretty consistently across the board, they didn't have any of those. Again, you could argue, well, 449 patients isn't enough to actually tell the difference between those. So maybe it's underpowered. I'm fine with that. What I will say is, is that I think gastric residual volume by itself is a, a completely flawed measure. And what I mean by that is, is that about two decades ago, Spain and McClave actually demonstrated that in critically ill patients who have a gastric residual volume that's elevated, 80% of them don't have a second one if you measure it again two hours later. So what this demonstrates, I think, is, is that either the gastric residual volume measurements are not very reliable from one measurement to another, which I think there's some truth to that too, because it depends on where the tube is that you're actually drawing the fluid from the residual from, or that because you have these rhythmic contractions of your stomach, that if you give it enough time, it will actually empty and get rid of whatever contents were in it. And therefore you don't end up with a second elevated gastric residual volume. So in a number of the studies that we did, we actually made you have two elevated gastric residual volumes in a row before we actually did an intervention on an elevated gastric residual volume. So I think the measure of gastric residual volume by itself is somewhat flawed. We think, well, that this is a safety thing and that you should absolutely measure it, but I don't think the measure it's actually the measurement is actually that accurate because of changing, you know, and remember in the ICU we rotate our patients every two hours. So every two hours it's likely that the, the distal port of the tube is in a different part of the stomach than it was two hours prior. And the way the stomach actually works, it might just reflect some time when the stomach hadn't been contracting and you might see it lower after the stomach contracts a few hours later. So I've worked with you, Todd, and I know your answer, but to be clear for our listeners, what I'm picking up is that you don't monitor gastric residual volumes. So in our ICU, we don't monitor gastric residual volumes routinely. And what I mean by that is, is that we don't have the nurses draw a gastric residual volume every six or every 12 hours while the patient's on enteral feeds. I think a gastric residual volume may be helpful in the context of other gastrointestinal intolerances. So if a patient has abdominal distension and that situation, you check a residual volume and it's elevated, those two things together may say, whoa, this patient's not tolerating their enteral feeds very well. Um, or if they have some regurgitation in the back of their oropharynx, Again, the elevated residual volume of that may say, I may need to do something with these enteral feeds to protect my patient. But you already were going to, if they had regurgitation, that's already a marker that they're not tolerating it. I don't need the gastric residual volume to tell me that, right? Yeah, but you might, if they had regurgitation, for example, you might lower the rate but keep it going. Whereas if they had regurgitation plus an elevated gastric residual volume, you, may, you, you may might say, lower the rate and keep it going. You may, or you may say, I'm going to turn it off for four hours and I'll turn it back on four hours later. It might make a difference in, in what you do. The other thing that I would say is this. For me, I would rather have my nurse doing something that I know 
is beneficial for my patient than taking the time to measure a gastric residual volume. And if you talk to your nurses, many of my nurses have told me it's like the grossest thing I do. I pull back those enteral feeds with all of the gastric juice and sometimes bile and all that sort of stuff. And they're like, it's just gross. And then you make me give it back to the patient when you, you know, return the residual volume. So uh, I think you can alleviate that tension if it is there with your nurses by just not routinely checking them. Other critiques of this study, which I think are legitimate, maybe, are that this was all in medical ICU patients. So some of my surgical ICU colleagues say, is this true for surgical ICU patients? People that we've just operated on their gut, you know, that sort of stuff. I don't know. Maybe not. None of them have been able to definitively tell me why those critically ill patients are different because my patients in the medical ICU have gastroparesis and gastric stunting and dysmotility and, you know, all of those things also. Maybe nutrition impacts your wound healing, potentially. Yeah, maybe. You know, Nutriurea 3 didn't look at wound healing because they're not surgical patients. So maybe there's a difference in wound healing between fully fed and, you know, less. And maybe you're right. Maybe in the surgical ICU, there is a benefit to not stopping feeds as much and providing more enteral feeds in a day than you would if you checked residual volumes. So I'll play a little bit of a foil here, Todd. On episode one of our podcast, you said you really like interventions that are free. We've talked here about how maybe this is underpowered to detect the difference in VAP and there was numerically less VAP if you checked gastric residual volumes and VAPs are associated with increased costs and mortality. It's free, Todd. Yeah. Checking gastric residual volumes is free. That's for sure. But you know what else is also free? Not checking gastric residual volumes. That's what's also free. I think if you really, really, really think that this 0.9% difference between the two groups is real, then you might say, I'm going to keep checking gastric residual volumes. It doesn't cost anything from a supply standpoint. It's five minutes of my nurse's time, you know, et cetera, et cetera, et cetera. As I said before, I already have some suspicion that gastric residual volumes aren't the marker that we think they are. And maybe even before this study was published, I was looking for a reason to get rid of them. uh, And this just sort of fed into my prior belief and my prior hope. And therefore, you know, we got rid of them. All right. That's all we have for episode eight of the ICU Ed and Todd cast. If you have questions or want to tell Todd that he got it all wrong or anything else that you want us to talk about in the future, you can hit us up at ICU Ed and Toddcast at gmail.com. You can also hit us up on the social ICU cast at Ed Chen. That's E-D-Q-I-A-N and at Todd Rice underscore ICU. Thank you, Todd, for again, your insights. Thank you again to the study teams for all their hard work and congratulations on completion of a trial for us to interpret. Thank you to Mike Gannon for the intro and outro music and thank you everyone listening and we will see you next time let's go save some lives let's go save some lives This podcast is made for educational purposes. The content provided in this podcast and in any linked materials is not intended and should not be construed as medical advice and should not be used to diagnose or treat any medical condition. It's inevitable. We try to stay away from opinions, but all opinions represent our own and not of any entity that we work at. Please keep this in mind as you enjoy the podcast.